Well, we've been asking this question for the last few weeks. Not necessarily what's the next big thing, but what's the next little thing? And I'm glad that we can have that conversation today and kind of dial into another installment of that. I've really been wrestling with this a lot, to be honest. This whole season has gotten me um, just really questioning a lot of what God's trying to do in my life, how he's trying to nudge me forward, what he's calling me to, how I think, how I feel, how I engage life. And so I pray that this has been a good season uh, for that for you as well. Now, I've been thinking a lot about the book of Esther. It's a small book in the Old Testament, uh, and I'm going to highly encourage you to read that uh, this week. You're going to dive in. It's just 10 short chapters, but some excellent stuff in there and lots of of, uh, I'll call it fun. Uh, there's lots of marital issues. There's, uh, there are harems and multiple impalements. Uh, it, it's a pretty incredible book as you think about kind of the action of what's happening there. And again, check it out this week. You're not going to regret that. But one of the fascinating things about this book is that even though God is clearly at work multiple times, uh, he's never actually mentioned anywhere in this entire book. And I find that to be fascinating because it's almost like the writer is egging us on, that he's beckoning us to ask the question, where do we see God at work? And so we're going to notice a couple of things as we kind of start to walk our way through the story. I think we're going to see uh, God kind of answer that question, which is great because we find ourselves in a season where maybe we've been asking that question for lots of different reasons, right? Like in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of all of the issues in our society and the opinions about this and the opinions about that, in the midst of different expressions of hatred and of violence and all these different things, we might be really asking, where's God at work? And I think we're going to discover as we walk through this story, we can see more clearly, not only where is he working, but how is he working in us and how is he nudging us to move forward and be a part of what he wants to do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So we're going to see a couple things like this, that first God plants us right where we're at, and then he takes us where we need to go. So I'm going to Look forward to kind of exploring that with you. And he also shows us that he sustains us where we are and there's always hope for the future. And so even as we go through life, God is helping us get through and then giving us a trust and a hope for what is to come. All right, now let me frame up this story a little bit for you when it comes to the book of Esther. And so a uh, little bit of a snapshot in time. Um, at one point in time, the Jews were actually exiled out of their homeland into Persia. All right, and right now that's, we would say that's modern day Iran. Okay, and so here are the people of God. They're exiled, they're in Iran, they're in Persia, and they're having these issues of what does it look like to live as a foreign people in a different society. Now I want to introduce you to four main people, four main characters that are going to show up in this story. The first one is Esther. Okay. And so Esther is actually this Jewish girl, right? Who was adopted by her uncle when her parents died. Okay. Now she is uh, the key central figure in this story and spoiler alert, she becomes queen and actually has the opportunity to save her entire people. And so that's absolutely incredible. The second person in the story is Mordecai, or as I like to call him, Uncle Dad. Okay, so Mordecai also, by the way, has a great arc in the book of Esther. It's one of the many reasons 
reasons I want to recommend to you to watch or to read this story throughout the week. Uh, Mordecai is incredible. He even has an opportunity and does save uh, uh, the king from a plot to kill him, right? So he's got great favor with the big guy upstairs as far as Persia is concerned. Speaking of that king, that's our third uh, component to this story. Xerxes, the king, he's kind of the emperor of the known universe of the time, right? He's incredibly powerful, but unfortunately, uh, in terms of his ability to kind of lead and make decisions, he's known to take on a little bit too much wine. He's prone to drinking uh, and very susceptible to the strong influences and personalities around him. And then our fourth character enters the scene as Haman, right? And so we have Darth Haman showing up to the screen. He's the prime minister at the time. I'll give you one guess as to who the villain of this story is. Uh, But now that you kind of see who we're working with, right? Who is in the story, how these characters are going to interact, you're going to start to see this really cool web of how all of this plays together. And then we see how God is at work in these lives in ways that they never could have expected. All right. So as we take a look at these four characters, we're going to kind of open up with King Xerxes, right? And so King Xerxes um, recently rejected his then wife. So Queen Vashti actually refused to go to a banquet, refused to show up at the invitation of the king, and then she was ousted from her throne, right? So she wouldn't come to this banquet. And as you read the story, you'll see that there's lots of kind of craziness even in that of itself. But what happens, this is where Esther enters the scene. And so Esther basically gets herself into an ancient version of a beauty pageant. And out of that contest, the king actually selects Esther to be the new queen. Now, this is a big deal for lots of reasons, because one, it's one of the real big reasons why Esther's in the place to do something and and make change happen. But it's also worth noting that the king did not realize that Esther was Jewish, right? Because of the way that the exile was working at the time. Now, as we take a look at uh, the scripture and how this plays out, I think we want to kind of get in the mindset of how Esther is kind of navigating life, on how Esther is kind of taking all of this in, right? She, again, is an exile. She's adopted. And now suddenly through a beauty pageant, she becomes queen. Where is she at? And so the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is huge. Because Esther isn't just becoming queen like she was sitting around with her Princess Aurora and Princess Jasmine dolls her whole life dreaming of one day becoming the queen of Persia. No, she's a a simple girl, a foreigner in the land. This was not her dream. She didn't have some kind of strategic master plan together of how to get into the royal family and figure all of those things out. She wanted to make sure that she understood how uh, she could find herself discovering what it's like to be queen in a foreign land and do all these things. So Esther's mentality, it's a different country. It's a different people. She's not exactly sure what's going on. Now, Haman, right, our Darth villain, if you will, of this story. Uh, Haman is the prime minister, and he's kind of a big deal, right? So, And he wanted to make sure everyone knew about that. In fact, the people in his life that worked for him, he would have them bow down to them uh, as he entered a room or showed up in a new place. But here's the deal. Mordecai, Uncle Dad, right? Esther's uncle. um, He wasn't going to do it. He was Jewish. 
He knew that there was only one true God. He knew that his allegiance belonged to God only. And so he refused to bow down to Haman and Haman hated that. So Darth Haman, right, he develops this grudge against Mordecai. He's upset at his no bow down clause and he despised him. And because of that, this hatred of the Jewish people started to fester up within him. And that for Haman is the beginning of the end because just like the king, he didn't realize that Esther herself was a Jew either. Now, when we see Uncle Father Mordecai and we see Queen Esther discovering this plot, they suddenly have become aware that Haman is trying to get rid of the Jews and kill them. They were obviously distraught. They wanted to do something and Mordecai has some absolutely fantastic insight. And he says, who knows but that you have come into your royal position for such a time as this? that maybe this is why God has brought you through this absolutely unpredictable pathway of showing up as an exile adoptee and now you're queen. Why would that be? Mordecai is seeing something as Haman's scheme is coming together. He sees maybe it's for such a time as this. Now, this is important as we take a look at what God is doing. And we try to understand, God, why do you have us in different circumstances like this? Why am I in this job? Why do I am in this school? Why was I born in this community? Why is my history my history? All of these different things, these questions we might have about ourselves, we have to understand that God plants us where we are and takes us where we need to go. This is incredibly important. Because sometimes we want to fight for our direction. Sometimes we want to question why we're, where we're at. And yet God knows exactly why. God sees the pieces coming together and he sees the path forward. So even as we are questioning where does God have us in all this, it's incredible and important to remember God's got this. He understands what's going on. Just like that, Esther wasn't a brilliant strategist. She didn't know how to get herself into this position. There was no how to save your people in three easy steps YouTube video. There was no way that Esther actually knew how to move a redemption plan forward. And so through all of this, she reluctantly agrees to Mordecai's suggestion. Mordecai, her uncle, her father figure is reminding her that maybe God has her here for a reason but she remembers what happened to Queen Vashti, that the, uh, the previous queen denied the king, that she stood up against him and was cast out of the kingdom. And we don't even know for sure what happened to her. It could have been a cover-up. And that fear is setting in to Esther. Imagine her suddenly just churning inside of, what am I going to be able to do next? How can I take this step forward? What if I approach the king and he has me killed? She's fearful. She doesn't know what's happening. And so she reluctantly agrees because she sees God's providence. She sees God moving. And yet she also sees the reality in front of her. So what does she do? This is absolutely wonderful. I love this response. And I would love for us to take note of this as well. And so here's Esther's response. I love this, right? So she says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa. That's the capital of the Persian kingdom and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
I love this because her first response in the middle of her fear is to actually go to God. She understands that she can't do this on her own. She doesn't know exactly where to start. Again, she's not some master strategist and she's trying to figure out what can I actually do next? What's the step I can actually take? How do I actually begin to do the right thing? How can I move forward? I love this. She starts with prayer. She seeks out God. She goes to him and says, what am I here for? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? And so she invites the king to dine with Haman, right? So the king and the prime minister together, Esther will be there so that she could tell the king about Haman's plot. But her courage actually temporarily failed her. And while they were together for the first banquet, the only thing she could actually muster up is that she wanted to have another banquet. So this time, as she shows up to the second banquet, Haman's there, the king's there, Esther's there. Now, she finally feels like she has the courage to say what she needs to say. If I've found favor with you, Esther says, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. King Xerxes asks Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, an adversary and enemy. This vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king obviously was furious to, uh, to think that someone would subvert him and go after the queen and her people. He was beside himself. So he leaves, he storms out and Haman knows it's, it, it's a foregone conclusion with the king. And so he turns to Esther and begs for mercy. And while her, we have to understand that while her courage initially faltered, right? She initially at the first banquet's like, I, I, I can't get it out. At the second one, her trust in God's providence that she was there for a time such as this bolstered her resolve at that second banquet. And then when the king returned, it wasn't good. Just as the king returned from the palace uh, to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? And so they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. So thanks to Esther's courage, her obedience, her influence, the king changed the law and saved the Jewish people. This is incredibly important because now we start to see how God is actually sustaining us where we're at and how he shows us there's always hope for the future. Esther didn't know how this was going to play out. But she sensed through her prayer, through her seeking of him, that he was moving her along. She saw God's hand at work in all of the small details and began to look and say, you know what? If I perish, I perish. I understand God's future. I understand my hope in him. And if he's working all these things out, I can trust in him. Now, when I see these things play out in our own life, when I kind of take a look at how our lives start to mimic these types of opportunities, one of the first things that came back to my mind is this unfortunate moment that I had actually in the Atlanta airport. Now, as I share this story, I feel like I'm making a confession to you right now, but let's dig into it here a little bit. Many of you have been in the Atlanta airport. 
And you know that when you wanna get from terminal to terminal, you have to hop on different trains or you have to walk very long pathways between terminals. And so I'm navigating there through, some of you guys have seen these pictures before. You've seen how these long terminals are decorated on the ceiling and they wanna make sure that this super long walk isn't super boring for you. And so you kind of walk through and I'm, I'm probably going from like A to E or something like that. It's always a long walk for me because of my flight path, I guess. But I'm walking through and all of a sudden, as I'm probably about this far away from where the train actually comes together, the train station, if you will, underneath, I start to hear this guy yelling. This guy starts yelling so loud that I can hear almost everything that he says. I'm probably still 75 yards away and I can hear almost a full conversation that he's having with himself and an employee. Now this employee of the airport, they don't necessarily have any power. They don't necessarily, their job is to say terminal B's that way, this train goes that way. Super simple job description, low-level employee, probably doesn't pay a whole lot, but yet this traveler is berating her. And I'm hearing this yelling, I'm hearing this language, and I'm hearing things I kind of wish I never would have heard before. And as I'm getting closer and closer, I get about 25 yards away, and the traveler's train comes, he hops on the train, and he's off. And in that final 25 yards, I start to feel this nudge. I start to feel this nudge where it's like God was telling me, stop, have a conversation with this young girl, remind her of her dignity, engage her, remind her she's not forgotten, that people see her, remind her that she shouldn't be afraid, that that guy had no business doing that. And then this is partly why I feel like this was so clear in my mind. I actually had this this feeling that I should show her a picture of my daughter's Halloween costume, okay? And so that particular year, uh, this was how my daughter was dressed uh, for Halloween. And uh, maybe I'm biased, but I love this picture. And every time I see it, I just get a grin and I get this like sense of pride. And I, I just love taking a look at this, this little teeny girl and her homemade cowgirl uh, outfit for Halloween. And I thought to myself, as God's nudging me and all this, what if... What if I can go talk to this person, remind them of their dignity and show them this picture and get them to smile a little bit and help them start to think about what life actually is and not just how this previous traveler treated her. And so all these ideas are flooding through my mind. I get closer and closer and closer This still plagues me to this day, but I just kept walking. And I, I can't put the reasoning together as to why I did. Uh, maybe I was afraid of some, some type of weird social backlash, um, but I don't even know how to put it together. I must have been afraid of something. I know that I wasn't in a hurry. I felt incredibly strong that God was nudging me to go encourage this person, show this picture. And yet I just walked away. I, I, I sometimes don't know what to do with that. Now, I trust that God loves that person much, much more than hinging upon my reasoning and, and ability to obey at that given moment. But I don't know what happened. The truth is I have no clue what happened to that girl 
I don't know if somebody else finally listened to God and showed up and obeyed the Lord's nudges and said, I, I'll remind you of who you are and show you that you're worthy and lovable and have dignity and restore some joy to your life today. Maybe he sent someone else or maybe that person's life was at its, its last straw. Maybe she quit her job that day. Maybe she went home and bawled for hours. Maybe something even worse happened. I don't know and I never will. And unfortunately, in that situation, unlike what Esther had, I didn't have an an opportunity to invite her back to a second banquet. I lost my courage in that moment. I did not take the little step forward, and now I don't know what's next. Now, thankfully, Jesus is really good at this. Jesus is the one that knows how to redeem situations. He's the one that can step in. He, he'll, he'll figure it out. That, that girl's life is in Jesus' hands, not mine. And I do take some solace in that. But what I do know is I missed an opportunity. I saw where God was at work. I saw how he wanted to use me. And yet I lacked the courage. I lacked the, the wherewithal to step forward and say, I want to be a part of what you're doing. Now, we're probably, hopefully, we're asking, how do we avoid this, right? Like, how do we not have those types of moments? Most of us probably have moments like that that we can think of, where we look back and, I should have said that, I should have done that, I I should have looked that way, I should have, whatever it is, you, you know what those memories are, and that's God reminding us, not out of guilt, he's not trying to pile on us, he's trying to show us what's possible. And so how do we avoid this? Well, I I think there's a few things that we see play out in this story. And one of them is sometimes you just got to marry the king. All right. Now, what that really means is sometimes you just have to do what's right there in front of you. God has you in those circumstances. God has you in this moment in history. God has you in that family, that school, wherever it might be for a reason. Your relationships are unique compared to anyone else on this planet. Is God saying, I have you in this circle? for such a time as this. I want to use you. I want to make sure that you are a pathway to the hope that's found in Christ. Sometimes we just got to do what's right there. The second thing that we have to do is we have to find the banquet, right? We actually have to find the opportunity of who's around us. Who's the neighbor that lives near us that no one else really knows about? No one seems to pay attention to. Who's the friend in your circle that sometimes feels left in the dust? Uh, What are the injustices that are around you? What are the things that you're watching and we're being passive and you're not sure what to do next? Is God nudging you to do something in those scenarios? Things move because of relationship. And that's why God works with us the way that he does. He invites us into relationship with him so that we can move. Then he invites us to continue to extend those offers of relationship to others to see things move as well. And then, of course, we see that we want to bring up the hard conversation. She knew, Esther knew what she was getting into. She knew that she was going to accuse the king's right-hand man of some incredibly evil stuff. And she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's why God had her there. And it was her time to say something. But she still did it with tact. She did it with love and gentleness. The scripture always is imploring us, if you're going to say the truth, if you're going to step out in faith to make sure that you're doing it in a loving, kind way, but not to back down, 
to say what needs said. Whatever these things are that God might be nudging you to do, we have to be ready and sure that we're not going to avoid it. We have a second shot at another banquet. We have this opportunity to stand up and actually do what God has called us to do. We can respond and and now moving forward, we can be a part of the little things and the little nudges that God is calling us to do. And we can trust that God has us there and will sustain us. It's like Esther said, if I perish, I perish. And I don't think most of the things that we're dealing with are life and death, but we understand that if God's got us here for these reasons, we can trust how he's trying to move things and help us all have this hopeful influence of seeing God be more known. When we let God work in us and we trust that God is good, we can get a much better handle on how we can be hope in the darkest of situations. So when you feel God's nudge, when you sense God working in your life, what are you going to do? What are we going to do the next time I get nudged in an airport to go talk to this person? What are we going to do the next time that there's something in our family or something in work or something at school where we're supposed to say or love or serve or help? What are we going to do? And is, it, is God nudging us to move in those directions? Instead of trying to figure out the whole thing and trying to make sure we can map out all the different steps in our head. And if I say this, is this going to happen? And if I do this, is that going to happen? Instead of trying to figure all that out, are we willing to trust that God is at work? Are we willing to trust that God, if if God is nudging us, if God's at work in our heart to interact with somebody else, God's at work in their heart too. God knows how he's asking us to interact. God's setting up those scenarios for us to act. And are we going to trust when he nudges to do that? We, I want to encourage us all to ask the question, where is God at work? What is he doing around us that we can respond to? And what can we do out of it? Now, maybe he's doing something inside of us. Maybe he's doing something in our life where we can respond to these circumstances. We can respond to life coming at us. And we're going to be in a position to actually step up and be a part of God's work to impact different people's lives. Maybe that's a part of it. And we need to follow his nudges to do that. But maybe God's also at work in us. Maybe some of the nudges that he's putting on our minds and heart is to actually remember that he's trying to work in our hearts, that he's trying to transform us, that he's trying to make us look more like Christ. He's trying to help us follow in the footsteps of Esther. And so one of the best things that we can do as we face these fears and we step up into godly courage is to remember that it's not just us at work. I love this promise as a believer, as a follower of Jesus in the scripture. In Galatians 2, it says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What an incredible promise. That when God calls us to step out into faith, it's not dependent upon my strength. It's not dependent upon my words. It's not dependent upon, it's dependent upon me allowing God to work in and through me. And those little steps, those little things of saying, God, I want you. 
And I invite you to work in me or where the strength and the power come from to be able to do that in a loving way. I want to ask you, where is God taking me? As we process this conversation, does God have you on a path? Are we allowing him to direct it? Many of us have been thinking of names or situations or scenarios or issues, and, and it, it's not just our gumption that's pushing us forward. We sense something calling us, beckoning us to take that step. Some of us feel stuck. We feel like we're, we're stuck in this place, in this job, in this season, in this pandemic, in this environment of hatred, whatever it is, we feel like we're stuck and we don't know what to do. And we have an opportunity to respond with the little things and seek him, go after him and let him start to show us what those little steps are. I love this quote that I stumbled across this week. It says, from the voice of God, I know where you are. I know what day it is. I know what you're doing here. You are not forgotten. You are not alone. Now get on with what I've sent you here to do. Jesus knows right where he has us. He knows the life and the pathway that we find ourselves in. He knows what the future holds and he knows the role and the opportunities that he has before you to make an impact, to shed light into the darkness, to have the courage that Esther did, not in herself, but in God and understanding that he has us here for a reason. I wanna encourage you so strongly to spend time in prayer this week, to seek God out to find and ask, where are you at work? And I think you're gonna to start to find more clearly than ever and see glimpses into God's reality and his work in our lives and how they can impact everything around us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the invitation. Thank you that we were people as followers of you that had no idea where we were going and you called us out of that. You brought us into a relationship with yourself and now as we, as we walk the pathway of life, you're actually calling us to take certain steps. You know the best steps that we can take. And I pray that as we, we go after you this week, as we dig into the scriptures, as we spend time in prayer with you, as we, as we talk with our family and our, and our friends that are encouraged by you, that we would start to discover you in a new and fresh way. And maybe we would start to spiritually hear your voice in a way that maybe we've never have before and start to trust in your goodness, in your grace, in your plan, and our part in it. God, help us to follow you. Help us to see you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.